Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Natalie Newell from the new documentary Science Moms. Natalie Newell is an educator, podcast host, science enthusiast, and now filmmaker just releasing her film Science Moms. I asked her about her background and interest in science growing up in small town Connecticut. So I grew up in Connecticut in a little town called Ansonia, kind of right outside of New Haven. Um, Nothing too exciting, just kind of the typical like suburban town. Um, I grew up, uh, I guess I'm going to talk a little bit about religious background and stuff growing up because Mm -hmm. I know that's that's part of what you cover. Um, uh, My family is Italian-American and part of that growing up was going to Catholic school and Catholic church. Um, You know, I've been asked about religion before if religion was a big part of of my upbringing. And I think looking back, it was more like a cultural Catholicism than a worse, we're really strong believers in, in God and a higher power type of religion. If that, does that make any sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I grew up going to, you know, to Catholic school from the time I was in kindergarten all the way through high school. And part of that was also because, um, the school system in in my town was not fantastic, and we were fortunate enough to have grandparents and other elderly relatives who helped pay for um, for the Catholic school mm-hmm. as an alternative to to pub- to the you know local public school. Um, so I went through the whole thing of you know getting my first communion and looking like a little bride. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the thinking about Holy Communion and and some of these rituals of Catholicism, they're they're real strange. Mm-hmm. the The fact that you know we all paraded down the or whatever processed down the aisle mm-hmm. of the church, looking like little brides and grooms for Jesus to go and eat his body. Yeah, it, it's it's weird. Did it seem weird to you at the time? You know, it didn't because that was just a thing that we did. Mm. It was part of um, because going to Catholic school, you had religion as part of your your coursework, I guess. Like it was a class that you had. I I don't know if we had it every day, but we had, you know, religion textbooks. And there was just that point in second grade where you knew it was coming that you were going to start studying for, I guess, and learning about First Communion. The weird thing, though, looking back that I remember, too, is that we were all just kind of excited because practicing for First Communion was just like taking a break from regular schoolwork. Mm-hmm. It was it was like a little sort of fun thing that we were doing. But I don't I don't know that I truly understood, you know, everything about it. It was just a this ritual that you did and you got a dress, a special dress to wear. And I remember wearing like little frilly white socks to the whole, the whole ensemble with a veil. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, well, I'm talking about it now and it's, it's real weird. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really strange, but 
as a child, you you did this thing, you had a party afterwards, the relatives gave you, I think, pretty much envelopes of money. And and it was this thing that happened. And then you continued to go and get communion and, you know, you were eating stale crackers from that point forward once a week. The way you talk about it, it's almost like a combination of a birthday and a school play. Yes, it is. Because it, it's sort of that that rite of passage, in a sense, of a birthday. You know, another year happens, you're older, you get to do more things. But it was sort of like a school play, in a sense that I remember I got to do one of the readings at the Mass, because it was a big a big Mass for mm-hmm. um, the communion kids. And we all had a part to play in this. It was, it was sort of like a, a performance. We, I, we sang some songs. But every kid in the class, I think there were about 25 of us, everyone had a certain thing that they got to do. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, there's in a school play, every kid has some role to play. Um, that's what it was. And then, you know, later you end up, um, I, I got confirmation when I was, I guess, 15 or so. That was in high school. But before the before the communion, though, came the... Um, reconciliation Mm -hmm. first penance or whatever it is that you as a second grader go and confess your sins to a priest isn't that weird too Mm -hmm. that's that's bizarre too because i remember also that one that one i remember feeling like this is sort of weird because what what bad things do you really do when you're a little kid right i was gonna say what what sins are you confessing to it so i think i think if I can recall, I might have said I was mean to my sister mm-hmm. and I didn't listen to my mom or something like that, because those were probably the worst things I could think of. But you felt like you had to because I do remember you felt like you had to go and say something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you're a little kid and you have to go tell this person, this adult that, you know, you don't really have that much interaction with, but you have to tell this person essentially that you've been bad. You mentioned that uh, it, you saw it, looking back at least, as very much a cultural experience. But did you mm-hmm. also believe in it at the time? I don't know how much I really believed. I just kind of assumed that, you know, as a kid, I think you, I sort of assumed that there was that there was God. But I don't know if I truly knew what that meant or if I felt like it was something that was ever present in my life. Because even though we went to Catholic school and we went to church, we we weren't, you know, saying a prayer before we ate dinner at home. We weren't saying our prayers before we went to bed. Um, I wonder if, and I, I haven't really talked about this too much with my parents, but I wonder if they just felt like going to church was a thing that they had to do with us Mm -hmm. because their parents did it with them. And there was expectation from, you know, maybe the grandparents or whatever to continue that. Um, Because my family now, um, I, I would say my dad probably identifies as an atheist. My mom probably leans more towards the agnostic, maybe there's something thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I think she's a bit 
more like me um, in the in the lack of belief. But yeah, um, we all kind of came to a point. I think after all of all of the traditions were done, um, I got my confirmation. Emily, my sister, a couple years later, got her confirmation, and at that point, there really wasn't a a reason to keep going to church, I think, because you had to, you had to go to church in order to get confirmation. Mm -hmm. The the priest had to sign your church bulletin to say that you were there because you had to prove that you were a church going person um, in order to, yes, complete that ritual. But um, I remember eventually on a Christmas Eve, you know, sometime when I was probably in my like early twenties, college age or whatever, we, you know, we had been going to church still on Christmas Eve as a tradition, I would say. And then we all collectively decided we would rather just stay home and start our dinner earlier and drink some wine and hang out. And from that point on, it was just, it was done. The church, the ritual of church just was just done. And yeah, I know. And it it was the kind of thing where we're all just like, yeah, um, we don't need, we're not going to go anymore. And my parents had not got, had not been going to, you know, Sunday mass or anything at that point. And, and I think that, you know, maybe those Christmas Eve and Easter masses were the final, just little bit of holding on to tradition. Mm -hmm. But, you know, then you just kind of realize, hey, um, we don't, we're not really believing in this anymore and we'd rather just spend time together on, at the holidays instead of, you know, using however long an hour or two hours to go and sit and, you know, stand up and kneel and sit down and go through the motions of this thing that doesn't really hold any meaning in any of our lives anymore. Hmm. So, so yeah, it, it's the kind of thing where I, certainly identify as an atheist. And I think I realized that probably uh, freshman year of college, just in a conversation I was having with my friend Ross, I remember we were driving um, from, you know, on some kind of little road trip. And, you know, you get into those conversations about life and what you believe and all of that. And Mm -hmm. as we're talking about religion and God and beliefs, um, I, I realized in that conversation that I, it's not that I'm really questioning too much, or I think that there, that maybe there's some higher power, but not necessarily the God that I learned about in Catholic school. I just realized I, I don't think that there's anything out there Mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that. And atheist seems to work. So it wasn't any big, you know, deconversion that changed my life in, in any huge ways. Um, cause I know a, a lot of people have, you know, probably a lot bigger sort of deconversion moments and stories and mm-hmm. these things impacting their lives in huge ways, right? People mm-hmm. who grew up in families where faith and religion were really important. Um, I feel fortunate that my case was just not that, that I got to, you know, just be very open with my parents as time went on and just letting them, letting them know kind of where I stand on 
on my outlook on on life and whether there's anything beyond this and all of it. I mean, my parents have listened to me on different podcasts, like talking about this stuff. So it's cool that I have that relationship with them and that my experience with, with faith and all of that, just, I just got to figure it out myself. And did you also have an interest in science from an early age or did that come later? You know, I think that the the interest in science probably started like really solidifying later. Um, I don't. I mean, as a kid, I was it was definitely a curious child. Where I I, I mean, I was convinced that there were dinosaurs buried um, in below my parents' uh, driveway and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I would I would spend time digging, and I <laughs> I had I had this like I went through a big just Jurassic Park loving phase and a, just big dinosaur phases through different parts of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I always had curiosity that, that ties in with, with things like science. Um, my mom is a nurse. That's her background and her profession. So I, I grew up, you know, just kind of knowing that that that's what she did. And she would even, I remember years ago, talk about how important it was to, go to the doctor and get vaccines and all of that. And man, my mom, when she hears anti-vax stories now, she like, she still, she sends me links, of course. And <laughs> it's like, can you believe this? Um, so I, so I had that just, you know, looking back, I feel like that probably made a little bit of a difference as I moved forward, became a parent, became interested in kind of this world that I'm interested in now. But the, the true love of science, um, I think started to develop even more um, when I was like in college, sort of, I guess, an intersection of science and skepticism. Um, What were you studying in in college? So I was a psychology major and a human development major. So uh, I went in and I got assigned to an advisor. You know, when you go in freshman year, they, they assign you an advisor. And I guess you kind of hope that it's somebody that that you can relate to and works out well. And my mm-hmm. advisor, Stuart Vise, um, he, and yeah, he's probably one of the most important people in my life in some ways, because I happened to get assigned to this guy who's, he was a psych professor at Connecticut college. Um, as time went on, I realized that, you know, he was writing for places like skeptical inquirer and he wrote a book about superstition and he had this, you know, this whole background in sort of the skeptical community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was a class that he taught. Um, he taught a number of, of the psych classes that I took like psych 101 and statistics and um, a behavioral psychology class. But then there was one that he taught in my junior year of college. So I was 20 and it was called Irrational Behavior. And it was one of the the higher level psych classes for undergrads. And looking back, that class was basically Skepticism 101. Mm -hmm. He taught all about, you know, all about fallacies and all about um, debunking pseudoscience and just, and critical thinking and all of the things that, that I feel are so important now. And I feel like that class is one that made me want, like, I took the class, but then I wanted to know more. So that's after that, I started reading stuff like Carl Sagan and, you know, 
Michael Shermer, even though I know he's a problematic figure possibly, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, like I started getting into, into those books that I think help shape a lot of people's, um, I don't know, kind of skeptical thinking. So that's where getting into, you know, reading Carl Sagan in my early twenties, I felt this, I don't know, like surging love of, of science and, and yeah, and just sort of all that, all that goes with that. And the thing with, with somebody like Carl Sagan and reading that, it shows you how cool science is and how awesome the world is and, Mm -hmm. and all of that. And he writes with such a, it's like this sense of awe and wonder that goes along with everything that's out there in the just natural world. And it may, I think that reading all of that started making me even more solid in the fact that like, there doesn't need to be belief in some, you know, higher power or creator or something because the universe in itself is just so awesome. Mm-hmm. And how rad is it that we're here as like a happy accident of, you know, all of it. So I think there's that intersection of the the science and all of that in the writings of people like Carl Sagan. Plus, you know, at the same time I was reading Hitchens and some of the, you know, kind of atheist writings and stuff. And it all it all started just gelling for me. And I feel like, you know, kind of is part of that path that brought me to where I I eventually was a parent and decided to make a movie focusing on science and parenting. So these are all, I think, little stepping stones in who I am today. So you mentioned that you've made this film called Science Moms. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that because you were a parent and you felt there was a need for something like that? What's the genesis of the film? Yeah, so so yes, I I was a parent uh, at the time that I decided to make the film. Um, Going back a little bit before I was even a parent, um, my my career was in Montessori education. So I, after I graduated, with, you know, with my bachelor's in psychology and human development, I went to grad school for education. Um, and I focused on the Montessori kind of education style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, t- and for four years, I taught classrooms of children ages three through six. And then for five years after that, I was, um, the school principal of this little, just awesome little Montessori preschool and elementary school. And so my, my like work life involved children and their parents. So even before I had kids, I was noticing that there, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of worry and a lot of fear that comes with being a parent. Like you want to, you want to do like raise these tiny humans to be the best people they can be. You want to keep them safe. You want to keep them happy. There's so much, you know? And so I, in, in my work life, I would have conversations that sometimes would make me pause and think, you know, this, like something doesn't, something doesn't feel right. Or there seems like there's a lot of misinformation out there. I'm little things like parents who would tell me as the, you know, the school principal, essentially, I think you should only allow organic food to be served at the school for Mm -hmm. snack. And I'm, I think, 
huh, that, that doesn't sound right. But I, and I would just, you know, I would say no to that because reasons like financial reasons and stuff. <laughs> um, I would, I remember the one, the one that sticks out to me so much. This is when I, when I had my own child at this point. So I'm a parent, but I'm also still working at the school. Mm-hmm. My son Milo was, I don't know, I want to say maybe six months old or something. It does, The age doesn't really matter because, yeah. Um, he was crying because babies cry. And a parent at the school came up to me and, you know, I'm, I know she meant well, but she suggested that maybe I look into taking him to a chiropractor. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because she has been taking her children to chiropractors since they were babies. So those, so there were moments that, that to me, like looking back, I, I mean, in the, in the moment I handled it just by saying, okay, um, I like pretty much have to leave this conversation, but Mm -hmm. in a polite way, because that again, did not seem right to me. And it just felt like there was so much like woo out there. The parents that were, you know, fellow parents, again, meaning well, but telling me that maybe I should look into delaying the vaccine schedule or you like the things that unfortunately have permeated into kind of mainstream parenting culture with, you know, no help from people like Jenny McCarthy and Gwyneth Paltrow and celebrities who have, I don't know, somehow become authorities mm-hmm. on on raising children. And so I feel like seeing all of that, it it was making an impression on me, but um, just in the way of thinking, man, I wish that there was an alternative to this kind of messaging. Um, so all of that, you know, is happening around me. And one night, um, by this point, I have two children. I have, so Milo is my older one. He is going to be five in April and Zeke just turned three in December. So I have my two little dudes Mm -hmm. when Zeke was, um, just a baby. And I was, I was up at night feeding him. I was scrolling on my phone and there was, I never was really into, you know, mommy blogs or, doing too much of that, you know, Googling about kids and child development, because Mm -hmm. I, I did know that there was a lot of misinformation out there. But one parenting site that I always enjoyed, uh, was called Grounded Parents. And I was just looking at that site one night and saw this post. um, It was in the form of this open letter written by a group of moms who were also scientists, scientists, science communicators, farmers. Um, It was addressed to people like Gwyneth Paltrow and Sarah Michelle Gellar and celebrities who were really getting behind that just label it campaign when Mm -hmm. it came to GMOs. Um, So they wrote this open letter essentially saying, you know, we're, we're moms too. We care about the same things. We care about our children and their health and what they eat. But you know, what you're saying, celebrities, is not founded in and grounded in science. Um, mm-hmm. And so kind of they hashed the, the women who wrote the letter hashtagged it moms for GMOs. And 
we're just trying to, as I read it, we're just trying to put out a different narrative around parenting issues, around things like food, um, not looking to spread fear and misinformation, but looking to to bring to bring facts, to bring evidence to to anyone who is reading it to try to make them less afraid of some of the things like that they don't need to be scared of. Like we don't need to be scared of things like GMOs or vaccines that that scientific consensus has has shown to be safe, you know? Mm. So I so I saw this and felt, you know, for for one of the first times reading something that had to do with with kids and parenting and food and all of that, feeling like, okay, I here are people that I feel like I'm on the same page as, but this kind of messaging is not the one that gets out there as loudly as things like, you know, anti-GMO stuff or super pro eat only organic food or anti-vax messaging. It's these women, you know, had this awesome message and I wondered if there was a way to amplify it. And from, it was just an idea I had that maybe they would make a good, like short documentary. From that point, it was pretty much the next day I was in a coffee shop writing all my ideas down that I later sent to sent to them to see if they'd be interested in participating. Did you have any background in, in making films? Did you know kind of how you wanted to do that? Or did, was that a learning process for you as well? It was very much a learning process. But it's also I mean, this whole the whole project is definitely a like it takes a village sort of experience mm-hmm. because I I had the idea but um, I'm fortunate in that my my children's dad is um, he's an editor for National Geographic, so he's edited TV and film and all of that. So I I did bring the idea to him, and he agreed to edit it. Um, I have my best friend Ross, who I mentioned earlier about the atheism conversation. Uh, he is a filmmaker and film professor, so he's somebody who I went to with you know, an initial conversation just to bounce the ideas off of to say, like, do you think that this is, you know, a even just an idea that's worth pursuing? Mm -hmm. And then how do I go about doing it? So I even though I had not done this myself, I knew people to ask to get started with it. Um, In each in each city where we where I interviewed the women, I hired a director of photography. So I, I knew I wanted to get it done in a way that was professional. Mm-hmm. And so I at least knew who to go to to start, you know, getting advice initially. But it, the whole thing was very much a, a learn as I went process. Mm-hmm. And even things like, you know, a movie takes money <laughs> to make. So mm-hmm. it was the first time I did a Kickstarter campaign, which was successful. And I was overwhelmed with the positive response to that. And yeah, it was, it was very much learn, learn as you go. And, and I think it's the kind of thing where, you know, I, I learned just as much about myself and other people and all of that as cheesy as it sounds like Mm. through this process, because it's a cool thing. I mean, and you've, you've made a film, you've made an awesome film and, and it's, 
you know, you, you discover a lot about, I think about yourself when you have an idea and you see it all the way through. Yeah, that, yeah, that's absolutely true. It's also interesting thinking about how the, you know, through the language of cinema, you can, you can tell stories and talk about ideas in different ways than you can through, (laughs) just like you mentioned that open letter, that's kind of one way of doing things, but the kind of the cinematic way of telling these stories, you're so many different elements going on that you can work with so many different tools at your disposal. What was the process like for you in figuring out how you were going to go about kind of telling this story? The idea was to kind of debunk myths about some of the, the issues that we cover, but also to do it in a way that that makes that makes the science, that makes the facts, that makes the information relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all of these women, I want, like part of part of it that I think worked out so well is that they are all just awesome humans. You know, where I was just able to sit down and have conversations. I went in obviously with with ideas of questions and topics that I wanted to make sure we covered, but the way that I was able to sit down with them and just talk as if, you know, we're friends and we're fellow parents and all of that. And I knew I, that's what I wanted to convey in the film, mm-hmm. that these are that these are people who, you know, they know what they're talking about, but also they're people that you could just sit down and have a coffee with, you know, because I think with with science and and all of this the facts are there, the evidence is there. And so that's a great place to start. But sometimes the, the storytelling isn't there. The, the capturing people's heartstrings and all of that, that's been used really well by kind of like the anti-GMO side or the anti-vax, you know, narrative. Mm-hmm. But with science, you know, sometimes you need to add a little bit of feeling to it in order to get to your audience. And so I wanted to at least have a vibe where, you know, it's not people in lab coats talking about GMOs and vaccines and, you know, regular medicine versus alternative medicine. It's it's moms in their houses. So who are some of the people that you interviewed for the film? So there's um, Alison Bernstein, who is a neuroscientist, um, Anastasia Bodner, who's a plant geneticist, um, Layla Katarai, who is a molecular geneticist. Um, then there's Jenny Splitter, who she's um, a journalist, a writer, a storyteller, um, and just kind of a another mom in the skeptical movement. And then there's Coven Synopathy, who is a science communicator and writer. So they all sort of knew each other online and everything when they collaborated on that open letter. And so that's how I, I got to all of them and they each, they each bring, you know, their unique life experiences, both in their careers, but also as parents, like, you know, there's, there's Jenny who has a daughter with a peanut allergy, which, you know, how many parents out there can relate to that. And she's, she was able to bring that to the conversation and, you know, everyone brings everyone brings their own their own spin and they and i feel like all of the women complement each other well too 
um, in in kind of a unified message, but with their own with their own ability to to tell their own stories. Was there anything that surprised you in the process of making the film? Anything you learned from the people that you spoke to that you kind of thought about something in a different way than you did starting out? Well, I one of the things that that struck me about the process was just how interested people in general seem to be in having these voices out there in terms of parenting and talking about children and, and all of these issues. I, I really went into this thinking like, you know, I'd try to make this, this film. Um, maybe some people would watch it on YouTube. Maybe I'd have, you know, my family and some of my friends following a Facebook page for it. But, but that, I mean, it, my expectations were exceeded beyond what I can really imagine um, in that there are, there are people that are, you know, sending, sending messages to me and the women in the film just saying thank you for speaking out about these things because they, you know, having seen the film or having followed just our process of making it feel like they have found a, a community of like-minded parents. And so for me, that's, that's been something that's been really heartwarming and awesome and, and just beyond what I expected going into it. Um, I think as you know, I, I've learned, I've learned a lot about, you know, a lot more than I already knew about things like biotechnology and, and all of that just by talking to not only the women in the film, but the people that I've met as a result of, of making it. Um, I think I feel more strongly now about, about things like how, how biotech could have positive impacts in the world. I remember learning for the first time um, about things like golden rice, you know, a, a GM crop that could help with vitamin A deficiency in mm-hmm. places where that's a problem. Um, I, I think going into it, I sort of had that perception that, you know, GMOs were just this thing that people got really mad about because Monsanto made them. Mm -hmm. But I did, but I didn't. And I, and that, I, that was just kind of what I heard. I didn't necessarily believe that they were dangerous and harmful and all of that, but I didn't realize just how much more biotechnology was besides just this idea of corporations and corn and soybeans, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I feel like my, my understanding has, has deepened and, and I feel like my, my passion for all of this has definitely, definitely grown in the process of doing this. And I feel like another thing that's just come out of all of this is before making the film, I, I was, observing a lot of, like I said before, the things that, that parents talked about and worried about and, and all of that. And, and I never really related that much to that level of, of fear and worry or need to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. Um, and so sometimes it was, it was hard to relate to other parents. And I feel like doing this film and meeting all of the just amazing people I've met, has given me this like this circle of people that I just love and respect and and I feel like are you know part like 
it's like you're part of a tribe, you know, mm-hmm. of people that that you share the same values with. And so personally for me, it's just been a really amazing process because all of the people over the past couple of years that have like come into my orbit because of this film. I mean, like even just like you and I getting to have another conversation, um, mm-hmm. like it's just so cool, right? You just get to meet, we just all get to meet each other. It's amazing. It's such a small yes. world, isn't it? It is because I mean, you and I had a conversation before we, before you recorded for my podcast. I mean, you were just super helpful with, me trying to figure out this whole thing of of getting a movie out there. Mm-hmm. So I think that that doing things like this, you realize how how kind people can really be. And mm-hmm. and I don't know, anything that allows you to see the good in other people, I think is fantastic. Because, you know, sometimes you can forget that if you spend too much time in the comment sections on the internet oh, yeah. and all of that. <laughs> but but doing something like this, it you to go and sit down and have conversations with people, to get to know people, to to do all of this, I think it just shines a light on on how many awesome people are out there and how much good people are doing. And so to have to have this for me to have this film as a reminder of that, it's inspiring. And it does give me hope that that there's just a lot of powerful voices out there that can that can do good i'm sure everybody wants to see the film now where can they see the film so um go to sciencemomsdoc.com and the movie is there for download it is 4.99 for a download Mm -hmm. so you know i i mean i buy iced lattes at starbucks that cost more than that so maybe you know instead of a coffee one day download science moms (laughs) I get asked this question all the time, um, and I, I, it's, it's such a difficult one to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. So what's next? Oh, I get asked that all the time, and I don't know. <laughs> um, no, but actually, I, I do have, have one thing that I know is next that I'm super excited about. Um, today, actually, in about an hour, I'm going to be recording the first episode of a new podcast that I'm doing. So my friend Chad Hayes and I are starting the Parenthetical Science Podcast, which is going to be sort of a skeptical, sciencey parenting podcast. And and I'm really excited for it. So that's a thing that's next. And I'm going to be showing science moms in some other places in the next next month or so. There's going to be one in one screening in the D.C. area, one in Montreal, one in Michigan. Um, I'm going to be giving a talk in Madison next month. So, so there's stuff, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the next big project is. It will arise. It'll, yeah. it'll, it'll come up. But there's, there's the desire to just continue being involved in in whatever this weird little world is that we're all involved in, you know, like, cause it's, it's really satisfying. And, and I just, I love, I love the people that I get to interact with because of this. So yeah, that so science moms, I'll just continue um, seeing where that goes. And I'm excited for the new podcast and 
Yeah, but it's a tough question to answer, isn't it? Because I bet, yeah, people ask you this all the time, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have no idea. Yeah. yeah, but isn't that cool too? Like, there's something in in not knowing exactly what it is, but knowing that you're that you're still in a good place with what you've done, you know. Mm-hmm. And you fit you. You'll, you'll know when, when it happens. You're in the right place and you're just waiting to see where it's going to take you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Natalie. Thank you. It was great talking to you again and I hope we do it again soon. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash the atheist book. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.